welcome to episode 44 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. Today on the show, we have Katrina Owen. Katrina is the creator of Exorcism, a tool for learning programming languages. She's also the co-author of the book 99 Bottles of Oop and the presenter of a number of really outstanding technical talks. This conversation really comes in two parts. In the first part, we talk about Exorcism itself, how Katrina came to start it, how it evolved into a larger community, and what it's good at. And then we talk more strategically about how Katrina came to change the project and how she came to analyze what it was good at and think strategically and not tactically, and how that can apply not just to an open source project, but to your job or your career or or other technical areas. Before we start the show, I have a few quick messages. TableXI is now offering training for developer and product teams. Topics include testing and working with legacy code in both Ruby and JavaScript, as well as agile project management and career development. For more information, email us at workshops at tableXI.com or check out our website at tableXI.com slash workshops. And uh, if you like the show, a review on Apple Podcasts would be great and really does help people find the show. And now here is my conversation with Katrina Owen. Katrina, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Katrina. I work at GitHub on the API team uh, doing kind of plumbing stuff, uh, sort of payloads and consistency and good fun like that. Not so much the features, the stuff that you'd actually use. The stuff that makes the features work. Indeed. I'm super important. You should know this. I also have an open source project called Exorcism, which has been going for about five and some years now, which helps people ramp up in new programming languages, which is a lot of fun. And we had a recent release, which is, I think, why Noel pinged me recently. I mean, uh, yeah, the recent release didn't hurt, but you know, it, it had been a while and I haven't talked to you in a long time. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, so let's talk about Exorcism. So you just had a recent, you had a release from release, and for those people who do not know what Exorcism is, can you describe? We talked about it as being a tool for learning new languages. Can you describe how it works? Yeah. So the interesting thing with Exorcism is it's not a straight line where you're given tasks that are goal-oriented and you learn specific things. It's much more of a broad, we give you a starting point to play with and you write a solution and then people, mentors, help you improve that solution or use it as a starting point to talk about the language that you're learning or the standard library or the community or the conventions. So it's a lot more open-ended than a lot of learning tools. The specific way it works is that there's a website, we have 45 different language tracks, maybe a little bit more now, and you download, there's a command line client, so you download an exercise, you're given a readme and a a test suite that doesn't have an implementation to make it pass, and then your job is to make the implementation. You submit that, discuss, and then you iterate on that. Right. So I was just playing around on it today for the first time in a while. And um, yeah, it's really nice. It's very open-ended and the mentor model. So I I should say, what problems with language programming, language learning were you trying to solve when you had the idea for exorcism and has it played out the way that you thought it would? So I'll answer the second question first, because that's an easy one. No, uh, this is not at all what I expected. The problem I thought I was solving was a workflow problem at a job I had. I was helping mentor uh, people who were learning to program for the first time. And we gave them warm-up exercises every morning. And every morning I was pushing new stuff up to a Git repo. And there were a number of 
problems with the whole process. People often didn't finish. They didn't bring the exercises to their mentors to get feedback. Nobody gave them feedback on on the solutions that they wrote. So there was a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of readability and just basic programming hygiene that they never really learned, even though this was kind of the perfect opportunity to learn those things. So I just wrote it as this workflow problem. I made it open source kind of by default, just because that's what the Ruby community does. And then people started using it. So where did it go from there? From there, it went in a lot of different directions. It was kind of formless and amorphous, and it was doing a lot of things for a lot of people and doing them all kind of, I don't want to say badly, but not in optimal ways. So some people were using it as a tool to help them learn programming for the first time. Professional programmers were using it to quickly ramp up in new programming languages that they needed for a new project or because they wanted to get a different job. And then you have the people who are really deeply into the craft of programming, sort of the artisan type who would get together and go super deep on the most interesting rabbit holes on like 20 lines of code, all the amazing things you can learn about architecture and uh, design and readability in their favorite language uh, using simple, trivial exercises. Isn't that effectively how the 99 Bottles of Oop book came about? It is, yeah. That's how it started. I was uh, was complaining about all the kind of terrible solutions that I was seeing to the 99 Bottles. And I offhand, I told Sandy that Sandy Metz, uh, who wrote practical object oriented design in ruby i told her i don't i don't know if there even is a good solution cuz everything they're all just hiding all the complexity in weird ways and i don't i don't know i'm going to give up on this one and she came back a couple days later with like four good solutions <laughs> and so from there we started discussing like how do you get from the simplest possible solution to um, what would be an object oriented design good design and then how would you explain that to people so, okay. So people were using it for all of these things and you said that it, you didn't feel like it was handling any of them optimally. So, mm-hmm. and, but at the same time, this community was building around it in, in multiple mm-hmm. languages and multiple directions. So uh, what made you decide that it needed a redesign and what was the goal of the redesign? So the first thing was that I was just completely overwhelmed. I had a community of people using the site. I have a community of people contributing to the site and my um, email notifications from GitHub were just I was drowning in them. I had no way of understanding how to prioritize things. Somehow I didn't realize that just because someone asked for it, I didn't have to make it happen. So I was basically letting, you know, thousands of people on the internet control my backlog and my to-do list. And it was not tenable. I mean, it was personally not tenable, but also not great for the product. Once I started realizing that it was coalescing into a thing that people actually care about and use, the worst possible thing is to add more features. So at one point, I was complaining to a friend of mine, Jeremy Walker. He was at the time the CEO, I think, or CTO of Meducation, a startup that he started and ran and then sold. And I was complaining to him about this, how I was overwhelmed and everything was terrible and the site was terrible and the user experience was non-existent and like the open source side of things was awful. And at some point, I kind of randomly in this complaint mentioned that at the time, I think I had 120,000 users and he stopped me and said, wait, 120,000 users. And I was like, yes. And, and I was kept on complaining. He was like, no, no, come back here. You've done something amazing. You've, you have what, you know, everyone wants. You have what they call product market fit and you didn't even mean to, you've done no 
marketing. You've done no design. You have no team around this that's like a cohesive team. It's just everything is kind of random, and yet you have this amazing thing. Let's talk about how to turn it into a real product. So we did. (laughs) And so that entailed like what conceptually and then what logistically? Wow, yeah. So conceptually, we had to talk about like what would it even mean to turn it into a product. Now, he had done productizations before. He's worked on a ton of product. So he had a really good idea of that because I I was like, it's that just seems impossible to me. And he says, no, 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 that's the easy part. You've done the hard part. So he kind of reassured me that we had a good starting point, which I didn't think we did. And then we got together, he and his team, uh, he has a phenomenal ops person, um, Charles Kerr, and a designer product person uh, who is just unbelievably good. She's led all of the research that led to the interaction design. She's done all of the um, visual design and she has a background in product project management, I think product management or project management, but she does both of them really, really well. Anyway, Nicole Chalmers. So the, the four of us got together over the course of probably about eight or nine months and we had really intense, deep discussions about what the foundation of exorcism is. Not necessarily who is it for, but what does it do best? And what does that mean? And we slowly discovered that the sweet spot for exorcism is this gap between when you're just starting a new programming language and you can you can kind of write a hello world, but you're referring to the docs and you can't quite remember where you need to put the braces or whatever. And then there's, after a while, when you've been using the language, you automatically reach for the right tools in the standard library or on the command line. You know how the syntax works, and it kind of feels like you're speaking a language that you're familiar with. You're not necessarily, it's not your native language yet, but you're comfortably fluent. And that gap, getting from one to the other, that awkward hello world to the basic fluency, is something that Exorcism does really well, and nobody else really targets it explicitly. So we started honing in on that. We discovered that out of the three main groups of people who were using exorcism already, there are two of them that actually need this. The people who are learning to program for the first time, as long as they're not too new, they do need to get to that basic fluency. They need a lot more hand-holding than professional developers who already know a language or two or three, but they do need to take that same path. And then you have the professional developers who are ramping up quickly in a new programming language, and they don't need as much hand-holding. They know a lot of the basic programming hygiene, and they are expecting to figure out what the idioms are and what the standard library looks like and what the tooling is, so they know a lot more about what questions to ask, and you don't have to help them as much along the way. And then the third group. Oh, the artisans. Yeah, yeah, they're on their own. It's fine. <laughs> they'll be fine. I mean, they'll they'll be fine whether we design for them or not. They're experienced. They they have you know they have fun. They know exactly what they're looking for. They'll find ways of getting it. Yeah, artisans gonna artisan basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, one of the things that that is striking about the exorcism model is is for, that you kind of hint you know sort of alluded to is that. The, the exercises along the way are not necessarily meant to illuminate specific language features. Right. They're, they're just like cool things that you can do with a language in sort of increasing, roughly increasing, broadly speaking, increasing complexity. But it's not like this is how you'll learn an if statement. That, you know, you'll need to use a loop for this one. 
kind of thing. Right. Finding a traditional programming book. Yeah. It's more interesting because we'll say, hey, this is the idea of a pangram. Figure out if this sentence is a pangram. And you can do it with a loop or you can do it by, you know, with a pangram, you can do it in probably 10 different interesting and fun ways. Yeah. But it doesn't tell you which way to use. So so it, it allows you to explore. Mm-hmm. But then guided by volunteer mentors who are going to give you some suggestions as to the idiomatic nature. Like that's the other thing that's often missing. I, I have often found in teaching programming that that level of this is not not just how things are done sort of logistically, but how things are done idiomatically is often hard to get across. There's there are so many trade-offs. There's so many times where, where you'll see something and you'll say, well, that's not wrong. It's just we never do it that way. Right. And some languages have more of this than others. Like, like you know, Ruby uh, somewhat notoriously has multiple ways of doing things, you know, one of which is considered like stylistically correct by the community. Yeah. And and then even then it's only parts of the community and some of the tooling will try to enforce it. But then you have people in other parts of the community who are like, why are you enforcing this? This is stupid. Um, So I, I kind of feel like Ruby is almost notorious for being, for encouraging whimsical use of the language. Right. Which is why RuboCop, the Ruby linter has 400 million options that you can tweak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> whereas other which I language, turn off by default. Right, where other languages, where, uh, and I do what everyone else does, which is find the set of options I like and put them on every project yep. I can. Yeah. yeah. Whereas other languages have settled on the, this is the one true way of formatting. It's such a relief that some languages do this. Uh, Rust does it, Go does it, and you never have to have a conversation about style again. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, Elm, I, I've been, I, as I've mentioned like multiple times on this on, on here, like I've been playing with Elm a little bit. I've actually also just started playing with Rust a little bit. The, the last episode we had Steve Klobnik and James. Nice. Steve made a compelling case that I should look at Rust. Uh, and yeah, it's, like I, I, the first time I saw the Elm formatting, I thought I w- I'm going to hate this. Like this looks terrible. But then uh, very shortly, I found that I actually really didn't care as much about it <laughs> as I thought. Yeah. Uh, as long as it was consistent, I, I, I picked it up. And, and yeah, it's nice not to worry about it. But there's yeah, there's this whole layer in, in Ruby. There especially, I find that there's this whole layer of well, why do you do it that way and not the other way? Well, mm-hmm. you know, kind of cause. <laughs> yeah. Just, just reasons, yeah. yeah. Every now and then, I post on Twitter. Would you reject an otherwise qualified Ruby candidate whose code sample was indented four spaces instead of two, just to see what people will say? What do they say? It is generally a mix. I should do it again because I haven't done it in a while. I generally get a, a pretty wide spectrum of answers. I have to admit, I kind of find it horrifying that someone would reject someone on that basis. I would find it to be evidence. I go back and forth on this. I would find it to be evidence that the person was not in contact with the Ruby community. So I would at least raise it as an issue. Like I would mention it. I mean, they might not be a Ruby programmer, but they can do Ruby and they can learn Ruby and they can go to a conference and become familiar with the Ruby community. Right. Yeah. So I would say like, it depends on what the person was sort of where 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 the person was claiming their level was. Yeah. Like a beginning programmer, I would probably not care. But if somebody was claiming multiple years of Ruby experience and was doing it that way, I would consider it to be at least interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it surely, it, it sure opens a talking point, but I, I wouldn't outright. 
No, I, I wouldn't. I, I, I've never been at a place where I would outright, outright reject somebody for that. Um, I've seen enough worse things in code samples. The reason why to me it was interesting in Ruby was because it felt to me when I came to Ruby, you know, about 10 years ago, that after being in languages, in language communities that continually argued over things like how many spaces to indent, that, that Ruby had actually like decided on it and, 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 and everybody agreed. Right. And, and therefore, if somebody was not doing what everybody agreed on, like, that's interesting. Right. You know, whereas like, at least in other language communities I've been in, the, the the consensus was not as strong, or at least was not as strong at the time. Um, yeah. So it gets us this kind of issue of like the language as as communication among your group, the group of people who use it, as much as the communication with the computer, um, which is one of the things that I think the mentoring model in exorcism helps bring out. Yeah, yeah, it really does. And earlier we didn't really have a strong mentoring model. Anyone could comment on anything. It was kind of intimidating because you, I mean, you put your code out there at your most vulnerable moment and uh, you don't know who's going to see it and what they're going to think about you. And probably you're going to feel judged because they're going to be smarter than you. They know things you don't know. And, you know, it's just this whole sort of Pandora's box of negative emotions or at least challenging emotions. And so in the new, in the new design, that was one of the things that we actually took very seriously is making mentorship uh, a first class feature and ensuring that it, the mentorship that we put in place supports your learning experimentation rather than being something that feels um, like you're putting yourself in a vulnerable position. Uh, Has there been a language community that's taken to exorcism that you were surprised to see, you know, that much support for? Kind of. So I was really delighted to see how much support the Elixir track has gotten uh, from the Elixir community because it's such a new community and it, it totally didn't have to. But people from Elixir, they they use it, they mentor, they use it in their Twitter hashtag Elixir, my Elixir status. So that's been a fun one. A couple of other ones that I thought were interesting is Delphi or Delphi. I don't even know how to pronounce it. I think it's Delphi, which probably means it's Delphi. Right. Tomato, tomato, gif, gif, Delphi, Delphi. That we have a wonderful maintainer um, who just came in and said, I want to make it work for for Delphi. And he did. And now we have it. And it's attracting some, uh, some activity, which is really great. And another one is CFML, uh, what used to be called Cold Fusion. The again, wow. a maintainer came Those in. Are both super. Awesome. Delphi is, is wait, 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 wait. Is Delphi still like Object Pascal Delphi, or am I thinking of something else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, it's still Object Pascal Delphi. Okay, and Cold Fusion. You are basically like the, the, this is like the beginning of my career as a web developer twenty years ago. Uh, yeah. was, was Cold Fusion markup language and um, pretending to understand Delphi. Right. And Cold Fusion has come a long way, I have to say, between, be, between now and 20 years ago. Um, it really has. And there are some had a long, wonderful had a long way to go. enthusiastic people. Yeah, it's great. Um, we have Fortran. I don't know if it's active yet, but we have Fortran, which is really interesting. There's a lot of interesting work in like weather modeling now these days with Fortran. Uh, I was talking to a friend who has a friend who works at Duke University doing really interesting weather modeling on a supercomputer in, in Fortran. All the algorithms are in Fortran. I mean, that sounds neat, but like, I guess there's, I'm sure there was a good reason. I'm, I don't know. I mean, I think the reason <laughs> that, that someone added it was like, they like Fortran, they use Fortran yeah, I, and it would be fun to help share that 
delight in languages I, with other people. No, I think it's great that it's there. Like I, I, I would, you know, I'm thrilled. Like every lesser used language group that pops up on Elixir is thrilling. Like I think it's great to see, you know, it's great to see enthusiasm to try and teach all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So I, I'm not trying to disparage any of the language groups being up there. I think. That- no, it's great fun. I mean, uh, it really is. Two more recent interesting ones are Cook. C-O-Q, which is a French, or it comes out of a French university, which is very, very math heavy. And this is a community that has what they call cockfights, which is meetups where they get together and challenge each other to perform math proofs, which I just think is an amazing concept. And then ballerina is a new language that is specifically written to orchestrate like cloud development stuff which now you know everything I know about cloud <laughs> development. That's great. Like, I think that's, that's really neat. And it's great that, that this is like a, a structure that new languages, like how hard is it for somebody to set up a new language track on exorcism? Right now it's pretty hard. The documentation is really, really terrible. Um, and so I don't do a good enough job of helping people get a new language set up. I have a script that will bootstrap a repository, put things in the right place. We need to get you an icon of this time a professionally designed icon by Nicole. We need to get you into the database. All of this is sort of patched together, chewing gum and chicken wire type stuff. And so one of the, one of the things I want to do is get all of the documentation in order so that it really is more of a streamlined process. Because right now people are flailing around and kind of feeling helpless and unhelped. Yeah, I, it occurs to me that, that the language that I don't see on the list that I think probably given the structure of exorcism would be extremely hard is small talk. They're working on it. <laughs> it's uh, called Pharaoh. So yeah, it's I know using Pharaoh. the, the yeah. yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, so they are, they're working on figuring out how do you file out from your image to a file so it can be submitted up and then make it readable for the mentors, but also possible to pull it back down and file it back in. Right. So the tricky part about Smalltalk is that Smalltalk code is not file-based and doesn't really have the same command line interface that... Most of these, these, probably not all of these, but most of these tools do, which I bet would make it challenging. Yeah, it's really tricky. On the plus side, the Smalltalk environment probably has all of the tools you would need to do it yourself. Like, anyway, sidebar. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm, I, I, you, you can't see what I'm doing. What I'm basically doing right now is scrolling over the list of available tracks and just sort of goggling. Goggling over it with you know with my language nerd heart. It's good fun. It's, it's such a cool list. So, have you learned languages through it? Uh, I started learning JavaScript. I'm using an alias because <laughs> I don't want people to know how bad I am and how much I don't know JavaScript. Uh, so, yeah, it's not official, but I'm learning JavaScript. That's fantastic on several levels. I actually really want to learn a number of languages. Haskell is one of those that keeps coming across my, I guess, awareness that is really different from anything that I already know. And I think it would give me a lot to learn it. Um, Another one is Elixir. If I know Haskell, then why not learn Elixir? Because that would be like the more familiar way of doing a lot of the same things. Uh, And then Rust is just the more I talk to the Rust folks, the more I want to learn the language. Yeah, the the languages that I've been playing around with, I, I've been playing with Rust, I've been playing with Elm, and I am like, I, it's not even enough to say that I've been trying to play with Elixir. I've been sort of like looking at Elixir from across the room. <laughs> yeah, 
Changing Gears, Part 2, Chapter Marker. I also like talking to you because I I think that you have really interesting things to say about programming in general and have given, you know, a number of really well thought out presentations and and, and talks that we'll link to in the show notes. And I was just kind of curious as to like what sort of things that you're thinking about development or programming these days. I don't even know where to begin with that. uh, Most of the learning that I've done over the past few years have been about people and not development. I mean, I guess in some way there's a lot of development involved because all of this has been driven by mostly open source work or being part of teams and doing development work. But almost all of my learnings, really interesting learnings, have been, I mean, sure, I've I've written an AST parser for the first time in the last two years, and that was fun. (laughs) But, you know, it's not really that type of learning that I've been doing. More things about how do you accept feedback graciously? How do you learn to give feedback that will be more likely to be accepted graciously? How do you give difficult feedback? How do you take a conversation on GitHub that is going south and rescue it? Um, How do you take a conversation that is going into the weeds and bring it back to where it needs to be? How do you realize when someone is a problem in your community and Do you talk to them or do you kick them out? Um, How do you figure out when people are all upset and angry what they're actually angry about? So what's the actual topic we're trying to deal with here? Like all of these things seem not really to be about development, but have been most of what I've been thinking about lately. (laughs) So you answered my question with a bunch of questions. Uh, <laughs> but now I have to make you answer some of them, I think. Mm. All right, make me answer one. <laughs> Let's talk about the open source part first, because I think that that was what you, what you had talked about at the beginning in terms of, of exorcism. Like mm-hmm. You talked about how you gain control of exorcism as like a product, but what caused you to gain control of it as like an open source community or you know an open source project? Yeah, it's still not really under control. Things still fall over a lot, but it's in more control. One of the things that really helped is that Jeremy Walker is now um, taking on a huge part of helping deal with and manage the open source community part of the project. So it's not just me um, dropping the ball. <laughs> we have we have other people who can go through and help triage and help make sure things are being at least tracked, often answered or dealt with. So that's one piece, uh, just getting more help, someone who is equally invested in making sure that everything is is being handled and taken care of. I learned a lot about prioritization that I didn't realize even was a thing. I used to think about everything in my GitHub notifications was something I had to do. So I'd start at the top and I'd do the first one and the next one and then the next one. And, you know, 20 hours later, I might get through to the bottom if it's a weekend. That turns out it's not optimal. (laughs) And when I started trying to figure out what to do about that, I actually hired a productivity coach at one point. They had four Ds, do, delegate, delete, or defer. And none of those things made sense to me because I was like, how do you decide the fifth D? How do you decide? And I didn't have any way to decide everything. There was no 
underlying logic underneath the prioritization, which is where I came across a book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy that has nothing to do with open source, nothing to do with GitHub notifications. And it gave me the way to decide. It gave me at least some idea about what strategy even is. And this is what I was lacking for exorcism at every possible level. I didn't have some sort of guiding uh, guide rails around how to make decisions. And so that's where I stepped back, worked with Jeremy to figure out what are those guide rails on how you make decisions about the product. And then on mostly on my own, started making decisions about how do you make decisions on the open source side of things. And so the whole strategy thing became really in- interesting because what the productivity coaches never told me was that you can't prioritize until you have a strategy. And a strategy isn't like, oh, I want to change the world and it's going to be amazing. Like that's that's not a strategy. Um, it's also not, you know, here are the 117 most important things I need to do on exorcism. That's also not a strategy. And what I discovered that a strategy is is a whole bunch of analysis about what the biggest obstacles are, what the biggest opportunities are, and what is the one key thing that you're trying to solve. And then when you have done all of your research and you figure out what's your strength, what's your weakness, what's going on around the project, you can start framing this in terms of a sort of a one-sentence guiding policy that will let you make decisions. So for the product, the, that guiding policy is that exorcism is its a path between an awkward hello world and basic fluency in a programming language. So if someone says, well, I want to, I want to use exorcism to create a, a, you know, a curriculum around you know, using Python for, for science or for, for TensorFlow, the answer is no, it doesn't fit within the guiding policy. And so I started using this to figure out what problems I was actually trying to solve on exorcism, the open source side of things. And it started helping me say no to things, close issues, defer things, say that this is absolutely important, but we're not going to be doing it in the next couple of years. So I'm going to close it for now, keep it on some backlog, be able to delegate. I learned an amazing thing about delegation. So there are all of the, we have you know, 60 different repositories, each in a different language, each which has exercises for a specific programming language. And often I have to do the same thing across 60 tracks. And what I used to do is I would, you know, roll up my sleeves and get going. And now what I'll do is I'll write a script. I'll create one tracking issue, write a script to create one issue for each repository that links back to the original. And now in your timeline on GitHub, you have a link to each of those that's red or green based on whether it's still open. And then I tweet about it and say, hey, I'm trying to get this done. And then within a couple of days, usually, like a bunch of people pitch in, they'll do just one language track, and boom, it's over. Uh, That's what being a 10x developer really is. It's making everyone else do the work. I know. It's amazing. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, yeah, so sorry, this is all kind of kind of all over the place, but the whole strategy thing was kind of the key discovery for me. That reminds me of a, a couple of different things. One was a piece of advice that I think I first got from Merlin Mann back when Merlin was doing a ton of productivity stuff about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, which was that basically you can only have one top priority. Mm-hmm. That's the ball that you never let fall to the ground, no matter what. And, yeah. and if you think you have like, 10 top things, 10 most important things to do, you are like 
fooling yourself in a dangerous way. Yeah. I think driving yourself crazy. I think Chad Fowler wrote a blog post about priority and how there's a book that claims that there wasn't a plural for priority for a very long time. Um, and that that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think that, right. The, so then the analysis becomes like, what really is the most important thing? Like, mm-hmm. what is the thing that is not, and that, that's applicable, you know, obviously not just to your open source project, but to all, all kinds of things. Like what, mm-hmm. what in my business is the thing that we can never let fall to the ground, you know? Yeah. You know, I've been at various small consulting firms where the thing was like our developers' growth is the most important thing and we will never let that fall to the ground. And I've been at others that have said like our clients' happiness is the most important thing and we will mm-hmm. never let that fall to the ground. And those lead you to make very different decisions. You know, you can have great companies in both of those contexts, but they'll lead you in different directions. Right. If exorcism, so a lot of people use exorcism during the hiring process. So if we decided that exorcism is really its sweet spot is as a hiring tool, we would be making very different product decisions than now that it's sort of the, the, the bridge between an awkward hello, hello world and basic fluency. Right. And it seems to me like there's not a lot of support. You, know, I, you, you were talking about strategy as the, 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 how you make decisions. And it, 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 this is something that I have also like seen in different contexts where in the developer world, there are a lot of resources to help you improve your tactics, but not as many to help you improve your strategic decisions. And and the context, one of the contexts that that sort of crystallizes for me was when I was doing hiring manager stuff. The, there are any number of blog posts, articles, books, things like that about what sort of questions you should ask somebody in a technical interview, and there are relatively few about. When should you hire a new developer? Like right. what is what is the right ratio of senior developers to junior developers? You know, how do you know that your team you, you need to widen your pipeline because you're just hiring all the same kinds of people? Right. Those kind of bigger questions, it's much, much harder to get a handle on those and there's just much, much less guidance. And I, like in a programming context, it's like there's a lot of how can I use this language more effectively in writing procedures and a little bit less of you know, how do I know I'm even doing the right thing to begin with? Although there is some of that, obviously, I suppose. Yeah. I've been using strategy at work a little bit just on my own job, uh, not at GitHub's high-level strategy. That kind of doesn't even affect me down in the sure. deep guts yeah. of the API <laughs> where I live. But one of the things I love to do more than anything is tackle technical debt and cruft and inconsistencies and and bugs and just refactor and make things easier to understand and perform better. And it's really hard to convince anyone that that's, I mean, everybody knows it's important, but it's hard to convince anyone that you should be spending your next quarter just doing that. But I realized that if you can find a whole pile of technical debt that you can put in context of greater goals, it's really easy to convince people that you should spend the next quarter doing tackling this problem specifically. And so right now what I have, I identified a number of problems that we have where people are overworked, overwhelmed, and we don't have tooling to support them. And I found a way that if we clean up a certain part of our technical debt, we can write code generators and documentation generators and linters and add additional tooling around our API that would dramatically reduce the load on not just my team, but a bunch of teams across um, GitHub and also integrators, people who use the API. 
And once I had that framing around it, it was very obvious what technical debt I should be tackling and what technical debt I should not be tackling. And also it got green lighted from my manager and the director of, of ecosystem very, very quickly to be something that, yes, it's absolutely worth solving. I think, first of all, that's a that's great strategy. <laughs> Job <laughs> strategy is, advice. Right? Job strategy advice to try and conceptualize what you're trying to do as a strategy. And in terms of what you're saying about technical debt, like that is something that I think I see a lot of developers. I was going to say junior developers, but I see senior developers struggle with it too. Is like, when do I stop dealing with technical debt? Like, when is this okay? Like, we have this idea, I think, that everything has to be completely bug-free and perfect to be useful, which is not true, I don't think. Yeah. And so the question becomes like where how how to make that cost benefit analysis. And and I don't know that we give people really great tools for discussing that. Well, we don't because a lot of those discussions that we have are tactical and not strategic. If you know what your company is trying to achieve, like one of the things that GitHub is trying to achieve is rich ecosystem of integrators who are making tools that we then don't have to make that add features to GitHub basically on top of GitHub so that people can expand their workflows and do all the interesting, intricate, gnarly, fun work around their code base that they need to, then first of all, we don't have to write those features. And second of all, other people are able to build businesses that live within this ecosystem. And so one of the great driving things on my team is a higher quality, higher performance, uh, fewer bugs, less friction for, for integrators. So that also decides what technical debt is relevant to reducing the friction and making it possible to have a richer ecosystem. Right. On the other side, I've been in cases where like, it was cheaper to live with a bug. Absolutely. I've used this example a couple times in various places, but I work on this. App, I worked on this app for a while that is essentially a ticketing app, and there may or may not have been a way to uh, a race condition in the app that caused an extra ticket to be allocated in certain cases. Right, and when that happens, you can refund them, and that's okay. Right, and we never we we never actually did figure out exactly how to set up your what sort of weird, crazy thing you had to do with multiple browsers or something in order to trigger it. But we had a process in place that we could notice it when it happened, and it was really easy to mitigate rather than taking you know two days of work that they didn't really have time for or budget for to have somebody fix it. And 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 like aesthetically, that bothers me. But it, it's a matter of framing because when I when I think about it as in my in my artisan hat, it bothers me aesthetically. But when I think about it in my client happiness hat, then hmm. it's great. Because they're much happier not spending the extra money to track down this thing that happens you know, like twice a year. Right. And it's incredibly strategic to do it that way. Because the question that you're asking is, what problem are we ultimately trying to solve? And that problem is not a bug. That's not bug-free software. It's making sure that people can buy tickets and that, you know, nobody spends twice the amount for a ticket. It's actually even a higher level than that. It's that they have a successful event and a successful right. like a successful ongoing long-term brand and event and, and nonprofit. Right. Right. That's even better. That's way more inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> and like clean code is a part of that, but it's only a part, you know, the, the mm -hmm. process that goes around it, this actually, actually uh, the process around it involves like administrative tools and a whole bunch of other things that we don't normally think of as being like the most exciting code pieces, but which are yeah. important at the strategic level. 
Yeah. We have a number of bugs that are not customer facing or like the, the error happens, but it doesn't really become a problem to anyone using GitHub. But it's a huge problem to people internally because all of these exceptions are getting in the way while you're deploying. And so they're making um, the t- deploy process riskier. And so those are bugs that we are now starting to prioritize, even though they're not customer facing, because they add risk to the product. Right. But that's a strategic goal, right? Exactly. It's not like you're going in there and saying like, oh, it, the most important, like I, if I went into this project and I said the most important thing to this project is that like we have 100% test coverage and we never get any errors in roll bar, like that is not going to be client, that's not going to make my clients happy. But it took me a long time to realize that that, that was not going to make <laughs> yeah. clients happy. Yeah. Because I think a lot of the training that we give developers suggests that the only way to, to be successful, I don't know if I'd quite put it, make it that strongly, but we certainly, there's certainly a lot of uh, discussion around code quality that doesn't talk about the costs of code quality. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think that that's pretty close to all the time we have. Um, Katrina, if people want to reach you online uh, and talk to you about exorcism or uh development strategies or anything, uh, where can they find you? So let's talk about this. I am famous, notorious, for making up names that nobody can spell. My handle is Katrinix. I use that everywhere. That's K-Y-T-R-I-N-Y-X. My colleagues uh, thank Slack for autocorrect on a regular basis. Um, The other one, of course, is exorcism, which also a lot of people put extra Cs and various things in there. I've made up other names that are unspellable. It's a bad habit. But anyway, you can find me online at Katrinix everywhere, pretty much. And uh, my email is on my GitHub profile, but you shouldn't use it because I get too much email. If you want to get involved in exorcism, that's github.com slash exorcism. We have lots and lots of lots of work for you to do. It's wonderful. We have a great mentoring community. If you've fallen in love with a language and you want to help other people fall in love with a language, uh, join us. That's mentoring.exorcism.io. And we would love to have you. Great. I'm really glad to get a chance to talk to you. It's been too long. And um, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter, and TableXI is at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rap. Tech Done Right can be found at techdoneright.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. Tech Done Right.